Welcome, everybody, to the Unbalanced Note podcast. Oh, my gourd. It is almost the end of the week here. I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by the co-host with the most, the DJ for life, Mark Chafferdini. How are you, buddy? Oh, man, I'm so great. If 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 I, my heart was a theremin, you could play it up, down, and sideways. I love doing this show with you, buddy. Good to see you again. The show is good to see you too. Uh, we have a fantastic episode today. Oh man, we have we have a legendary, an intercontinental champion DJ purveyor of music, EDM, joining the show. Kate Simpko, what's up? Hey guys, oh, it's it's great to be here, and it's actually great to hang out with Americans. That's that is not a British welcome, by the way. I live in London and <laughs> very, very enthusiastic and I'm loving it. So yeah, I'm, I'm good. How are you guys? You said We're you're good. doing fantastic here. You know, that I, I bring out my inner WWE star uh, to, to bring in awesome. people for the podcast. So <laughs> we're, we're going to get to uh, get to your music. We're going to get to DJing. We're going to get to the new film you're part of, um, Underplayed, this documentary. Uh, but first, like in the sound of music, we've got to start at the very beginning, right? So Kate... Where did it all start for you in music? Was it something you specifically listened to? Was it something your parents played? Where did it all begin for you in music? Well, um, I started piano when I was five years old. And so it really started there. Um, my parents, especially my mom, she, when she grew up, she wasn't, it, her generation didn't really have sports for girls. So she put me in every sport and um, I wasn't very good at sports. And she also, you know, but she, she put me in everything, I think, because, you know, she grew up in Chicago with a family with five kids and she just didn't have many, she didn't have the opportunities that I, that I had. So I think she just thought, well, just put Kate in every opportunity. And yeah, piano was the one thing that I really enjoyed. So I remember by the time I was like seven, I wanted to practice. I liked it. I was happy that I, there was something I was excelling at and I connected with, especially when I didn't connect with almost everything else. I was like, what's wrong with me? Um, so yeah, that's, that was my journey. And then my parents, my dad at home listened to lots of classical music. So that was what I was surrounded by at first. Yeah. And so do you remember the first uh, piano that you had? Was it like one of those little blue Casios? Was it like a, like a full scale, like a uh, piano? Like what, do you remember the, that? And do you remember the first song you actually learned on it? So we still, I mean, my parents still have the same piano. It's an upright Kawaii piano, uh, which is a Japanese piano maker. And, um, you know, I don't remember, I mean, the first couple of songs, like when I was like five, I mean, that was, you know, really like twinkle, twinkle, little star days, you know, but um, <laughs> I do remember that the big moment for me was, and I didn't win like a lot of competitions later, by the way, but I won a Sonatina uh, competition when I, and that was a uh, Scarlatti um, Sonatina. And that was, that was big for me. And um, yeah, I, I remember I remember liking to play simplified versions of Ragtime and George Gershwin and this sort of stuff. So I always liked sort of like funky piano rhythm stuff. And I always 
I was always opinionated that my piano teacher knew I wouldn't play something if I didn't like it. So she would play the pieces for me. And if I did, if I just didn't feel anything and that I liked in it, I just would be like, no, I don't, I don't want to learn that one. <laughs> so, she, so she was, you know, there's sort of a screening process, you know, that she would play stuff and I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I like that one. And you know, then I'd learn it. And yeah, that's how, that's how my journey personally with music began really. And did you, did you have, uh, so I guess, did you go through a phase where you would run into your parents' room or something like, looks at, you got to listen to this. I just did this. You got to listen to it and do like little recitals at home for friends and family. Uh, Yeah, definitely. Like a little bit of that. Um, for sure. I mean, like I said, I, I really, it was exciting for me that I was good at it. I mean, I, I'm making myself sound like I was absolutely, you know, not good at anything else. But I mean, listen, I was not good enough to be like, if you were visiting my house, I was not going to be like, hey, check me out on like the tennis court or check me out on ballet or check me out on any, I, we were just, you know, piano was the only thing where I could be like, ta-da, sit down, you know, <laughs> like, and I did enjoy that. I was like, I am good at one thing. That's good. <laughs> That's good. But that transition, because in college, uh, university, was this at Northwestern that you hmm. did uh, DJing for the radio, right? I did. Yeah. So I, um, I did. I started with classical piano, by the way. So I, well, so just to quickly get the DJing stuff in there. So I was a nice little piano playing student until around 15 when I went to my first rave, underground rave in Chicago. And then my musical interest shifted very quickly from practicing an hour a day to going out to underground raves in Chicago every weekend and telling my parents I was at a sleepover. Um, (laughs) Okay, first off, okay, let's slow it down here. Tell me what rave, where it was, and what that moment was where you're like, oh my goodness, I feel like the mind explodes and you're just like, whoa, this is me from now on. Yeah. Um, geez. So basically I had two friends that I knew that were going to rave. So like I said, I was 15 and I had any one friend, I mean, this is not to date myself, but you know, this was mid nineties. So like I said, raves were still underground, you know, that's why I could go. They weren't 21 and plus um, clubs. And so, yeah, the two friends were going and I mean, in retrospect, it's a little creepy, but they were hanging out with a promoter who was kind of dating them, but they were in high school and he was like mid twenties. Like I said, this is a little bit weird. However, to be honest with you, he's just super out there. Like, I don't, I, you know what I mean? Like, that's not the weirdest thing about him. He's, he's just like, he's just like, does, you know, it's kind of, uh, what is it that you say? Peter Pan kind of like never wants to grow up kind of vibes. You know what I mean? And I, I never felt like he was disrespectful to my friends, but I'm just saying that that was our in. And he threw some really big underground parties and would come to Chicago. And so they were telling me about these crazy experiences they were having and I was, I was definitely like a little bit scared and I was just like, what are we going to be like though? You know? And then, and then, um, yeah, then I went, I don't, my first rave was in downtown Chicago. I mean, they were always underground, um, secret venues and, and, um, I don't, I would have to look back and see exactly which was the first one. We also went to St. Louis for one. We drove to St. Louis for a rave. That was one of the first two or three 
Um, but yeah, I just. And did I, you ever get caught by your parents? So yeah. So what happened was, yes, basically I, at a certain point, so my dad grew up in the city and my dad grew up on the West side of Chicago and he's just really good with directions and stuff. And so we would get these directions and this was before cell phones and cell phones, but before smartphones. And, um, so we would just have an address and you'd get the address at like 11 PM at night. So I don't know how I pulled this off, but around 16, 17, I did just tell my parents, I was like, I don't want to lie to you. Or I think they caught me once. And so I said, I, can I just be honest with you? Like, this is making me really happy. I really like to go to these underground music events. And then my dad would help me with directions. So I would say, you know, this is the, so they would know where I was. I would give, and he would say like, I can't believe you're going to that neighborhood. Like there's, you know, a girl like you should not be going there. But like, in, I don't know, he knew I, somehow they felt better about knowing where I was. And I was just really happy and I was getting perfect grades at school. So that was sort of my defense. I was like, when I stopped getting straight A's, then, you know, we can say this is a problem. I mean, listen, I, if I, if I was my parents, I'd be like, no way, like I'm locking you up. But yeah, anyway, I got away with it. <laughs> that is awesome. So you started doing that and you got into the DJ and in the, started doing that in college, right? Or late high school, right? It was college. So I was just enjoying it. So basically um, enjoying it. And I stopped playing piano. You know, I was on a different tip with music, but then when I, when I was going to University of Miami, that's where I decided to go. And you had to choose your major before you arrived on campus, which is kind of rare. I thought undergrad is like, you go there and figure it out, but not at that school. So they sent me a book that was like two inches thick, full of all their programs. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to study history. I don't really want to study, you know, this or that, the other. And then I was like, yeah, music. Okay. You know, so then I went back to my piano teacher who I hadn't seen in like two years. And now I'm a raver wearing like wide pants and stuff. And I was like, Hey, you know, do you think you can help me prepare like, you know, a piano demo for one of the top 10, you know, music schools in the U S or top 10 piano departments. And she was like, sure. You know, so I, I did. And I, you know, I started practicing together to, again. And um, I got in, I was like, not to say that, I, I mean, I was the worst one there, you know, everyone else didn't go on a little tangent like I did. And, you know, I lost a couple years of time. So I was, I was behind. And from there, I decided that I was like, okay, you know what, actually you love music, but you don't want to be a classical pianist, right? I love electronic music. So I moved back to Chicago. That's when I started DJing. And that's when I, I just decided, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to try to make the music I love. Um, and I just, just don't fit into the sort of music school box of, you know, classical instrument performance. So that's what happened. That's how I got on finally, you know, I was 18, 19 when I got on the track of where I'm sort of on a beginning, the path that I'm on now. Awesome. Well, can you connect the dots for us? Cause I'm having a little trouble tracking you. So you play simplified <laughs> versions of Gershwin um, much like Daniel Pemberton, who went to underground raves, he said he was kind of geeky, would hang out and talk to the DJs and kind of learn how they did stuff. So how do you go from piano to either 
mixing other people's music or making your own in the electronic format? I mean, who is who were some of your inspirations and how did you, you know, chart this ever-widening angle of creativity? Cool. No, I'm glad you asked me that. So basically, in Chicago, I and and that's that this is what I'm gonna say now for the listeners really ties into what we're going to speak about in a little bit, the the film underplayed. So when I was in Chicago, like I'm saying, and I was teen, you know, 15 to 18, I genuinely promise you, I never even considered I could be a DJ because I never, I mean, all of the DJs I saw were men besides three women and they were in a collective and they were older and they just seemed like so accomplished and they were just, and I didn't know how to DJ. I, I just never considered it. I genuinely never thought there was a place for me with that. And the music as well, you know, house music is so rhythm, uh, rhythm based. I just didn't, I didn't see a connection between being a classical musician, a classical pianist and, you know, this beat driven funky music, right? I just didn't, I didn't see any correlation. I genuinely didn't. So when I moved to Miami, what happened was that's where I joined the radio station. And that's where I heard um, IDM. So intelligent dance music, warp records. Um, and I met um, the label owners of a label called Schematic and Schematic was sort of the US version of Warp and that was electronic listening music. And that just totally blew my mind because I was like, wow, this is linear music. You know, it's not cyclical and it's not just, you know, a lot of it is beatless or just experimental beats. And so it was really that, you know, listening to Plaid and Autechre and Apex Twin and all this kind of music. And, and that's what put it in my head to be like, okay, wow. like. I kind of, I like this music and I could see my, and they showed me Logic Audio for the first time. So one of the guys from Schematic who produced music, he was like, check this out. This is Logic, you know, sort of like, you know, smoking some weed at their house. And I was like, oh my God, like, you know, I was like, those are waveforms. I'm just like, oh, like, (laughs) yeah. And it was just like, I can't believe this exists. And I can't believe you can make the music on your computer, you know? And then I was just like, you know, sort of like, the more time I was at the radio station and listening to their music, the less I was like excited about practicing piano six hours a day, Beethoven. I was just like, man, you know, the, the other piano students in the hallway were like so excited about it. And that was their passion. And I was just like, oh man, the fire is not in my heart in the same way as it is there, theirs for that. So that's, does that make sense? And that was, that's how it was. So it was like going out to parties in Chicago underground that I could never be a DJ and then finding out about um, IDM in Miami. And that's where I was like, oh, electronic music can be something else besides just dance music and that it can be accessible that maybe I could do it myself somehow. Sure. No, that, that, that's awesome. And, and I guess maybe a follow-up to that is, you know, the, the keyboard that you have behind you has 88 keys, uh, give or take. Um, but then there is so much equipment that can be used to produce electronic music. Uh, what were some of the things you started with and what was, what were, what was a template? So when I came back to Chicago, um, at first I, I didn't make music right away because I didn't own a laptop. I mean, I was like, I mean, typical, like broke college student. I just didn't have a laptop, you know, (laughs) it's just, it's how it was. And, um, I didn't have any equipment at first. So I had to transfer to Northwestern. And so I was back in Chicago, like two terms at, a, at another college there just to like keep my head going, whatever. 
<clears throat> and then when I moved to Northwestern and started at the radio station, you know, I was playing their records. They have a big vinyl record collection on the radio mostly. Um, and then, um, and then I got into the music school at Northwestern. So I did, so I had one year at Northwestern where I didn't study music because it took me a year to prepare for their level of audition. It was like, again, I was like, oh my God, like, you know, just jumping through these huge hoops, you know, just to get in and be the worst one, you know, again, at piano. So I was like, <laughs> it took me a year, I did a year of preparing. And then I got in and then there, they had an amazing electronic music studio with the original ARP 2600 and move modulars that students had built in the 1970s, like a whole wall of just, you know, patch bays and crazy stuff and um, a lot of really, really amazing vintage synths. So I, to answer your question, I had to explain all this because the answer is my first pieces were splicing tape. You know, they taught, they taught us a really, really, really old school. So as you know, I you never would do that at home. I was at the university and um, the, you know, the first pieces I have are just super experimental. They sound like Stockhausen or something because, you know, you, you were recording the sounds on pieces of tape and cutting them with a, like a pocket knife. I don't even know wow. if you guys know what I'm talking about, but it's, it's like it's the first way sound was made, you know, electronic stuff. No, and believe me, I don't mean that in any offense. Like, I don't think most people do know what that is, but that's how I first made my music and it sounded really weird. Well, is, it, is that like <laughs> the way projectionists would splice film together? You would take an existing, whatever was recorded and you just join it up with the other thing that was recorded. So it just plays through. Is that early kind mixing of, Yeah, work? yeah. But you'd record sounds onto tape, right? And then, mm -hmm. you, but like, just like you said, you'd, exactly. So you'd, you record sounds onto the tape, like tape meaning like a reel, right? And then you'd use a sticky tape sort of to splice it together and make your arrangement. And, gotcha. uh, and then, yeah, you'd record that out. I mean, yeah, it's a lot easier these days. You just like open <laughs> up the <this> software. <laughs> well, I guess uh, the question I have now is that uh, you mentioned Aphex Twin earlier. And a lot of times when you are developing your style, you tend to maybe emulate somebody you like until you find your own voice. Who were the titans for you and what made you, I mean, with something as nebulous as electronic music, there's got to be no rules. So you could literally do whatever you want. What was it? What was the path forward for you? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I mean, I always, I actually am a professor of electronic music now um, where I got my master's here at Royal College of Music. And that's what I always tell the students. I say, you know, the best thing about electronic music is you can do anything. The most challenging thing about electronic music is you can do anything, <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> like, you know, like you have to know what you like and you have to know what's good and the context and everything else in order to, to kind of rein it in and, and get your own sound. So for me, at first, I wasn't comfortable making beats. I was just overwhelmed with just the linear compositions and just experimenting with synths and and yeah just figuring out like just experimenting with writing my own music because being a, an accomplished classical player does not mean that you can just compose really you know you're a performer and you're not only just a performer you're a performer of written 
music that you read is a language. So you're just sort of a translator, right? Of, of existing repertoire. So yeah, it took me some time. And then it was more about at first textural. So it was sort of like pads and, you know, just kind of crackly textures and found sounds and, you know, layering that on top. And then my first album was in 2002. So that was before I was even done with uni um, in, in Santiago, Chile. And the way we did it is he made the beats and I made the melodic parts. That was sort of our agreement. And that mentality is like, that's all I was capable of um, in my head lasted until 2005 when I did my first remix, which was for Philip Glass. So Philip Glass, I, yeah. So Philip Glass's people contacted me and, uh, and they're like, you want to, would you like to remix Philip Glass? And I was like, he's like one of my very favorite composers. And I was like, hi, oh, yeah, sure. And uh, it just, I just was kind of waiting for something to, for this not to be real. So then I was, you know, they're like, they sent me the entire catalog on CD that arrived to my, you know, my apartment in Chicago. So I was like, okay, I guess this is kind of real. And so I chose the song. And that was my first remix. I spent like three months on that one remix, um, but I was, I did it all myself. Like I literally did every element of that myself. I, I, I wrote it, I did drums, I mixed it myself and um, it got radio play in the States. It was in the Billboard Top 100 of Classical. So that gave me confidence. I went from thinking like, I can't make beats to Hey, I guess I can make some beats. <laughs> I'm like, know? I'm like picturing like you getting Koi Annie Scotsy and just making it EDM style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. cool. Did you hear back from him? Well, it was his label owner and stuff. And yeah, I mean, I actually, so basically it was, uh, I know you guys are in Texas. It was the the song or the composition of his um, Houston Skyline, which is from an uh, Errol Morris film, um, The Fog of War. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't think that the Quinet Scotty stuff was included. Not not everything was included, like at least given to me in in the CD collection. Um, but yeah, so that was that was awesome. That was really really amazing. And at, we did keep in touch. I, do you remember CMJ? It was like College Music Journal. CMJ, it's it's probably still around, but it was a CMJ is for college music. I think, yeah. Issue, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think I remember that. Yes. Yeah, it was like a weekend in New York. It was a big deal at the time. Um, and um, I flew out to New York and I performed with the Philip Klaus Ensemble, which was crazy. He wasn't in it. He didn't perform though. The Philip Glass Ensemble, by the way, can perform without him, I learned. And then we did something in Chicago as well. So yeah, I, I felt that was cool. So that was 2005. And then 2006, I had my first EP out. Um, and that was melodic electronic music, basically. So it was finally combining my two worlds together, you know, quite melodic chords and, you know, arpeggios and da 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 with house beats. And uh, yeah, sort of I, found my way. No, I like that. You know, listening to tracks like Lights Out, Kabuki Drop, and one of my favorites, the the Shiku. The Shikoku. Ah, uh, yeah. Shikoku, yeah. Shikoku, oh. that track is like fucking 
epic. Like I want that in like an action movie at like the climactic scene. Like it's just so, it builds, it's so good. Cause you kind of took all these different elements and uh, made like a a great like dish, uh, (laughs) these ingredients and made them. So I, that process, how, explain how that mind works of yours when you're just like, okay, this, this element will go here, but then something on the other spectrum will go perfectly. Is it just like trial and error? Or do you, or is, you just know from experience? At the beginning, it was definitely trial and error. And that piece, so, so now <clears throat> we're, we are getting into a, a slightly different territory when you're saying Shikoku because, okay, so I made electronic music and I toured as a DJ internationally, making my own electronic club music mm-hmm. from 2006 till 2000. 11 then I moved here to London to get a master's in composition for screen which is composition for film um and then I formed an ensemble here I started recording live instruments at the college studio I mean it was unbelievable that you basically the agreement was you don't pay the students you know that that they didn't want there to be any sort of exchange of money that the students need performing experience and performing with headphone click and da 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 and composers need experience so I was just like cool like how much time can I book in the studio can I just live here or what you know so I I booked in the maximum and it was 20 pounds an hour which was like 25 dollars including the engineer and you don't have to and you have as many instruments as you want whoa yeah what a deal I know and you leave with a like a professional pro tools session with Royal College of Music students like I said as many as you want for 20 bucks so needless (laughs) to say yeah, I know. I'm getting the thumbs up there from Mark. And yeah, needless to say, the thing is, I didn't get my master's right after. Like I said, I moved there in 2012. So I already had enough real world experience to to like you guys be like, yeah, I'll take advantage. But some some people who had a different path who just sort of just finished their undergrad and hadn't been in the real world and were just so tired of studying, you know, full, full stop, didn't, you know, they just weren't in the head. They didn't have the headspace. So I formed this ensemble from just so much trial and error, just recording a lot of orchestral instruments and trying them with electronics. And I didn't know how to write for orchestra until I got here. And that was a huge thing. I was the only one in my program that did not. So I just like, honestly, I did not sleep much for two years. I just was on YouTube and I have, I have it in there in the cupboard. I have the, or the closet. I have, um, you know, the, Samuel Adler orchestration book that's like this thick you know and I just reread the pages and just to learn what the ranges are of the instruments and what do they blend well with and then learning how they blend with each other and then how do they blend with the synthesizers I like so I like you know like vintage Roland drums and I like you know Korg and Roland-ish kind of you know Moog synthesizers that have certain kind of timbres so then it was a whole nother level of like okay what does it sound like when you have this move bass line with these orchestral instruments or this one or that one? You know, so it was a lot of trial and error. But then now I will say I am to a point where it's like, I finally paid my own dues to the point that I know, and, and you know, and, and that feels so good. I, I do remember asking a friend of mine who, who wrote for orchestra. I was like, how do you know? <laughs> I was like, how do you know? Like, 
you know it's just because before you record I you know I just you're like writing these dots on a page I'm like but how do you know what they're gonna sound like and she's like she's like I promise you someday <laughs> no and I'm happy to say I know now <laughs> <laughs> I like is that the, is that a is that a cat that's a cat that's a cat <laughs> this is my cat oh. Yuki yeah Yuki and she's been with she moved from Chicago so yeah she's a Chicago girl Oh, she's good. Purring, by the way, she we, likes it. She's very chill. She doesn't mind. She's purring. We we love the pets on the podcast. And, uh, does, she, does, does she have a proclivity <laughs> to a certain type of music you do? Probably more chilled, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, she she just she likes to hang, and I I don't know. I think she's used to it all. She's um, she actually always when I'm speaking about staying up at night for the masters. I mean. She always was by my side. So, you know, a couple of times I had to pull all-nighters before submitting, you know, some kind of orchestral score. And she was always awake with me. She never, she never went to bed before me. So she's, she's my girl. Oh, good, good. (laughs) And then this kind of moves into, you know, film composing, film scoring, specifically Mm -hmm. for this new doc, Underplayed, which, you know, talks about the, you know, the, severe gender inequality in the EDM and DJ world, which may, most people might not just even think about, but it's like a real issue. Yeah, no, for sure. And you know what? Um, yeah, even for me too, I just, it's just, it's just one of those things that most people in their free time aren't going to like dig up the stats. You know, so as a female DJ, I was just sort of like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just optimistic. So I'm just, you know, oh, it's getting better. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. I don't really know many female composers or film composers, but I think it's getting better, you know? And, and then I thought definitely like, you know, after Me Too, I think maybe a lot of people thought, oh, definitely it's getting better. So yeah, when I saw the stats, which I'll just, you know, say here on the podcast that, you know, 95, 95% of DJs are male. Uh, there's 3% of women in technical roles of any sort in the music industry. So that means sound engineers, recording engineers, uh, live sound, that's 3%, 3 out of 100. 0.3% are women of color. So let me just repeat that, 0.3%. That means l- like way less than one, well, yeah, like less than one out of 100 people in technical roles are women of color. How would and why? How would why? How, how, <laughs> how is that even why? possible? Yeah. Like, how is that possible? You just, it's just, it just feels like that would only be possible if they weren't allowed. You know what I mean? Like there was a rule that they're not allowed for it to be that low. But I mean, this is like the Annenberg Institute. This is not a statistics that is, these aren't, you know, random statistics you know of like a group of 100 people by the way these are these are legit um and in film scoring just to cover that last stat before we move on um at the top 250 box office films of 2019 was six percent women and 2020 it dropped back down to five percent again so you know it's really so I, i'm only saying this because it's not just djing and also it's knowing these stats for anybody who might even have the mindset that I had as a woman in music being optimistic just being like oh man like it must be getting nearing 50 50 now like nope it's not 
at all, like at all. <laughs> and, and you know, that that's scary too, because I mean, it, it's not about a lack of talent. It's just unfortunately mm -hmm. a lack of awareness and acceptance. So you're in a situation where, I mean, if you presented yourself as DJ Simcoe instead of Kate Simcoe, mm -hmm. I mean, the, is that a weird point of entry? Does that sometimes break down barriers? I mean, is there, do you have to maybe disguise yourself, you know, like uh, just to move forward? I, I, a lot of questions raised by the doc. For sure. And you know what? Um, I had a good conversation yesterday morning with the head of grad studies at the Royal College of Music who hasn't seen the film, but she was just sort of just saying how this month just raises the awareness to, you know, within her of the lack of female composers and the lack of everything else, because, you know, it's sort of like in academia as well, they're trying to, you know, round up like who can we talk about and who's doing stuff and, then, and it's like oh gosh like the pool of people is just as small as it was 10 years ago and like it's not getting bigger and something's not right here you know and um she made a really good point and this is something that i have noticed that along my path the past 20 years or whatever i have seen women have and i have said this before that i, I think that women can have even sometimes an advantage almost of like their first entry point because there's like a unique sort of exoticism about it. Or for me, at least for me as a female DJ who's touring, I noticed a lot of local females, like they would just got to find a girl, you know, if we have a girl's night, right? And like, you know, so it's easy to get that in the first time. But what I have noticed and what she brought up at, and what she said exactly was that women in terms of like their role and their socialization, a lot of times successful men have women around them that are sort of keeping them organized and managing their time and doing a lot, you know, like their assistance, right? So the support and women are so, you know, we're nurturing and we're, we are great at supporting and we're, we've been until two generations ago are throughout all of, history sort of groomed to do, you know, to be teachers and nurses and nurturing roles, right? And I have seen, I never thought about this. So she said it two days ago that I have seen that, you know, the women that I've studied with get the same degrees as men and then they go into administration. So, you know, there was one other woman with me in the Royal College of Music, you know, out of 10. So we have two out of 10. And I was like, what are you going to do? You know, and, and she, she went, you know, she just didn't believe in herself enough and just felt more comfortable working at like a record label here in London or just doing some kind of support, you know, and, and that's, I know I just said a lot, but I'm, I, um, I think it is worth saying, you know, when she said it, it really struck me in terms of why this is happening. I do think that women are more comfortable and there is something in me that's not comfortable with DJ Simcoe. It's just women are just, we're, we're a little bit more understated or something. You know what I mean? We, we are, and it's, and it's not that I'm, I don't want to say it's like a confidence thing, but maybe part of it is, I don't know, but like, we just, I'll stop talking because I, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm working it out as I go. So let, let me, let me hand the baton. <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay. Well, what's going it, on it, here? <laughs> it's really, you know, the thing is, unfortunately, it's not about the talent because I mean, I'm just going to okay. equate this to physicality. Um, Reggie Miller was one of the greatest basketball players of all time, 
but he was the youngest of four kids and his three sisters could kick the crap out of him any day of the week. So again, it's not about, it's about the talent that you bring to the table and the understanding of composition, or it's the, uh, the ability to put you know, beats together in a way that, that is pleasing. So it's just, it's, I mean, it's kind of infuriating just to see the disparate disparity between um, the sexes like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's what, that's a great thing that the, the doc is there to do is to help bring uh, some light to this. And um, it, in a way that EDM is, I think, difficult to understand because there's so much that goes into it. It's very nebulous. Um, but, you know, I think the doc opens pretty funnily, uh, pretty comically. Suzanne Chiani says, um, I'm quoting this, uh, shorten the envelope to make it a little more percussive. I know what each of those words means in the dictionary, but what does that mean when you put it together? Like, sure, sure, in the envelope to make it a little more percussive. Do you want me to tell you what that means? Okay, so yes, please. Okay, so a waveform. There's a there's a few different kinds of waveforms: sine wave, triangle, square, rectangle. Those are the basics, and each waveform has an attack, which is how fast it starts. So the attack is like. You know, um, so the envelope is, you know, is what she's talking about. And then um, the attack is how fast. If, if you, you know, if something percussive would have a very short attack, something that's like going to gradually ramp up would have a longer attack. Then you have the sustain, which, if you can imagine in your envelope, is sort of the horizontal roof part, right? So it would be, you know, like a flat roof. That's the sustain. And then the decay is where it starts going down. And then the release is like the opposite of the attack in a way. That's where you're ending. So a long release, like if you have the release all the way up, like sometimes I would do this trick at a live show. If I had the Juno 106 keyboard or something, I'd push the release all the way up. And then I could actually take my hands off the keyboard and, and start doing something else because that means that the release is like, it's just going, right? Whereas if the release is to the, you know, zero, then it's like, the sound just ends abruptly. So what Suzanne said, say one more time. And then now that I've explained what the envelopes yeah. are. Uh, sh shorten the envelope to make it a little more percussive. Okay, so yeah, shorten the envelope. So that just means she's talking about the sustain and decay though. So, you know, I, I think, so, you know, she's not, you know, so shorten it. So again, if you imagine the horizontal house and I know we're audio only, but you know, the up is the attack and then the sustain to shorten that short you know shorten the width of the top so yeah it'll be more percussive and and see that's talent because much like a <laughs> maybe a race car driver who just steers and hits the gas like you actually know what goes into the engine what happens when the pistons hit the carburetor and all that uh you know car stuff but no see that's 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 amazing because it's just it, you know a lot of that goes over our heads and there's mm. so much that goes on under the hood that we just hear it we're like mm -hmm, yeah and we don't know why we like it, but you're able to synthesize that based on schooling and methods of and harmonies. And so I got, yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And, you know, I, I actually had a moment like that on this panel I did with Suzanne Gianni and um, Anna Meredith, which was earlier this week. And yeah, I just was like, I just know that gender aside, there's so few people who have, a, you don't need an advanced degree. So I mean, this isn't necessary, but there's just so few film composers who have advanced degrees from the very best like 
institutions in the world like Royal College of Music and Stanford and have scored feature films, you know, feature length films and also write for orchestra. So, you know, not, not like do electronic composition and orchestral writing to that level. And so we were in a, you know, in the conversation and Suzanne was just, she was talking about some of the original jingles and stuff that she did, which I didn't know she had done by the way, but she did the original Coca-Cola sound bite. You know, she was the, she was the original sound designer. Yeah, of Coca-Cola really? and a lot, yeah, a lot of different um, brands before that, before that, sort of existed but you know remember the sound of the coke can opening up on tv commercials suzanne did that and a bunch of other ones to make money at first in her career no way so she yeah so she was talking about making one of the the big movies houses opening so i don't know if it's paramount or fox or whatever but back back in the day and you know again she was just like so casually like oh you know i just mostly use my sense but you know for some things I just found like you know I'd use trombones and tuba and you know xyz percussion just so that you know that that would you know come through and hit hit nice in the mix with the synthesizers and like Anna and I were like yeah and then I'm just thinking you know like how many people would actually legitimately be able to be like yeah you know what I mean? Like to know what it sounds like, like I said, with all the work that it takes to write for orchestra and really know and understand the electronic side. And, and, and then, yeah, I just feel like still there's just so few women. And I, I think one last thing to say of like why, I just think that maybe when it comes to DJs and stuff like that too, maybe, maybe people aren't as comfortable with women being in certain roles, like working with them. So, you know, if it's an, a mostly male film industry and you're getting to post-production and it's a, it's a male director and they're male executive, or executive producers and it's a male producer and uh, it's a male editor and it's a male music supervisor, like, and it's time to choose the composer because the composer comes last, like, and, you know, you can choose this guy who's like friends with a friend of a friend, right? Who you know is cool, you know, or you can choose like Kate, who's a girl, and like, is that going to be weird? Or we don't know, but like, you know what I mean? Like, maybe it just makes people a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know. Well, where does your confidence come from, and and where in the process did you feel like I know I know what I'm doing? This is this is second nature to me. God, I mean, honestly, it's. I mean, I just remember when I like different points in my career where I thought I was confident. And then, you know, I'm sure you, everyone goes through that, you know, that's, that has nothing to do with gender, but I, I, you know, Stacy Lee, the director did a great interview with billboard for anyone who's interested that came out on Monday, the, the day that the film came out and the headline or the, the, you know, what they chose to blow up on the billboard interview said, you know, that, women need to stop shouldering imposter syndrome, right? So I, you know, I, I don't think it's gender specific, but I do think that women get questioned a lot more and scrutinized a lot more. And, and it makes us feel like, yeah, maybe, maybe, you know what I mean? Like, you know, when you're getting asked, like, do you really know what you're doing? But do you really, you know, ooh, you know, I wouldn't want to take a risk with her. And then you just are like, oh yeah, yeah. You know what, you're, you, you know, you just, you just you're like, can I actually do this? You know, you, who wouldn't? You know what I mean? Like if I, if I was saying to you, if I was like, 
Brian, are you sure though? Are you sure it's recording? Wait, have you done this? Like how long have you been doing this podcast? Oh, you know what I mean? And like, <laughs> and you have this sort of chatter, you know, behind your head all the time. Like, you know, so you do, I finally in 2017, when I had my son, that for me, I think, although I'll probably have another moment and I'll probably be like, oh, wow, I thought I was confident, but I'm not. But I've, I have felt more confident since then because I was just like, I live in London. It's really expensive here. I don't have time for feelings to be hurt and whatever. Like I need to make money. I need to believe in myself. And like, I'm not going to take any jobs where I'm not paid well enough. And I'm, I'm going to start standing up for myself and my time because I have to pay for childcare as well on, on top of schooling and everything else here. And like enough is enough. Stop doubting yourself. Stop doubting your worth and just like lay down the law. But that was 2017. That was pretty recently. <laughs> All right. All right. And to answer your question, yes, this is my first time podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a great job. Oh, thank no. you. <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> no, I mean, and I just, yeah, I'm just joking about that. Oh, no, I know, I know. I like having fun. Uh, well, that's great. And I'm glad you took under this uh, this project because I think, I mean, it's important. It's poignant, and especially mm. in this time. And I'm glad you did. And if and I guess if there's, you know, if there's something from the doc that really stuck to you that you want to let all the listeners in the world know, what was, what's the one thing you want to let them know? Um, from the documentary. You know what? The one thing from scoring it, you know, the great thing about scoring a film is you really, really get inside of the message and you get inside of the characters and you get in the nuances of even their body language, you know, cause you know, your job as a film composer is sometimes to bring out emotions that aren't necessarily said, right? So, you know, I, I feel like I really got inside of it and, and watched a lot of times. And um, I think that the answer to how things are gonna change is through socialization of, of younger children. And, you know, honest, in, in, in a genuine, honest way, giving girls equal opportunity from the time they're young and not making them feel weird or like they're not accepted or they're freaks. You know, that was one thing that Susan Rogers said, who's um, Prince's engineer, you know, that she was the, you know, she was the only, she, she had only seen one woman's name on a record ever before her, you know, and she, ever, you know, and she was always looking at the vinyl records to see produced by, produced by, you know, and that, you know, yeah, you just feel like a freak. Of course, you're just like, is there something wrong with me? Because, you know, am I weird that I'm in this role? Um, so yeah, I think that's the main thing. Socialization from a young age, um, you know, Toki Monsta said too that when she was a little girl she was given dolls and an easy bake oven and her brother was given science kits you know and that's where it starts and I really think that you know that segment of the film is to me how things are going to change but that's also just to say that, that I'm being realistic that it's going to take time. This is not something where, you know, we're going to have a follow-up podcast in two years and be like, yeah, great guys. We're at 40% now, 40% women, 60% men in two years. Like it's going to be 20 years because it's going to be the next generation. You can't just, you know, you can't just go into music schools and be like, right girls, when you graduate, don't go into administration, you know, 
you need, you need to be like front and center, you know, or go to whatever opening DJs and just say, Hey, listen, we need you to play for 20,000 people tomorrow when they don't have that experience. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it takes time to get the confidence and experience. So yeah, yeah, it's just gonna, we have to start with the younger generation or younger girl, younger women. That's it. I hear you. I hear you. Do you have children, either of you, any, or any nieces and girls, girls around? Yeah. Yes. Godchildren. Yes. Yes, for sure. Good. Good. I have an an almost six-year-old daughter and uh, a lot, lot, like you said, um, no easy bake oven, but she likes playing with princesses and playing house and dolls and stuff. But uh, she also wrestles like a bear. So (laughs) I think there's, there's a drive in her to be not subjugated. Is that's the right word, but um, it's. We're gonna uh, work but on I see the pro saying. wrestling things. Yeah. With, uh, yeah. Pro wrestling, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was growing up, just a couple moments. I mentioned that how my mom, my, I think my mom was a tomboy, but was like a repressed tomboy because they weren't allowed back then, um, you know, in the 50s, going into the 60s. So when I would say, Mom, you know, I'm bored, you know, and she'd say, Well, go watch your dad change the oil in the car. And I'd be like, ew, I don't want to. And then when she'd see that sort of response, she'd be like, no, I'm telling you, get out there and learn how to do that. Like, ew, what are you talking about, ew? Like, you know, you get in a car, non-frozen. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you get in the car and you, you, know, you, you appreciate that it takes you from point A to point B, but you have no interest in learning. Like, that's not cool, basically. So, you know, just stuff like that. I think, um, am I on, video on? Yeah, but I, I, I am, you know, my, my son, like I mentioned is three. And so I, one of his best friends at school, his mom swore before she was born that she would never let her wear pink and she only wears pink. (laughs) (laughs) She's three. I'm like, uh, yeah, you know, so she's hilarious. She's Argentinian, the mom. And she's just like, I can't believe it. Like I, I, she's like, my husband makes fun of me all the time. She's like, but she won't leave the house unless she wears pink. So, I mean, you know, when I'm saying socialization, of course, some things are just inside people yeah. and they, you know, that's what they're interested in. However, we're the adults and we can also say, that's great. You can wear pink, but you're coming with me to the whatever trade show in your pink, in your pink princess dress. And we're going to, and you can be both. You know what I mean? <laughs> I like it. I like yeah. it. <laughs> Um, let's, let's hop into some of these fun questions, shall we? Some of these, okay. these fun questions. Uh, Kate, what's the most thrilling music experience for you, both as a fan of music and both in making music, whether it be maybe you perform somewhere on stage and then as a fan, you like or front row at a concert or something like that. Thrilling experiences. Um, for me, most thrilling is being in the crowd. Usually the electronic music, I would say any, well, I mean, or if it's just a really special festival or something where everyone wants to be present, you know, where it's not a situation where everyone's sort of like, where's the cool, where's the cool tent or where's the cool room or whatever, where every, you know, or even like, are my friends here yet? You know, when there's just times when you're at a club or a festival where, everyone knows like this is where they want to be and it's just like that amazing in the moment energy so that's that's my favorite as um an audience member and I mean of course if I'm on the other side 
of the decks or performing in that same environment that's also probably my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's interesting because I think some of my most thrilling moments as a fan uh, is something similar, you know, hearing a band or orchestra tune up right before somebody comes out on the conductor or whoever comes out on stage and just like that feeling of everybody, you know, amping up, enhancing, like, okay, we're going to hear mm-hmm. something groovy. And I, I, I feel you there. That's, that's good stuff. I like that. Um, what's the most curious, strangest uh, recording you own, whether it be on vinyl, an outtake of something, uh, something like that? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, when I first started getting into electronic music, I bought a lot of really weird vinyl, um, but one artist is called Coil, C-O-I-L, and um, that's pretty weird. If you want to check out not coil. this mortal coil, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, coil is pretty weird. Otherwise, um, I don't own it on vinyl, but some of the early music concrete stuff is really weird so like there's a, a song for any listeners out there that want to hear some some weird music uh barrio b-e-r-i-o visage so just you know the the woman's vocals she just sounds like she's demented and there's just really weird sounds so that that sort of music concrete era is the weirdest stuff to me to be honest but i don't i don't own a lot of it on vinyl but we ha- at northwestern um they had it a music listen like a vinyl collection of the library in a listening session station and we had to go listen as part of our you know coursework and so I just remember being there on my like crappy headphones at the library and like listening to this music and like a couple of times almost feeling scared just like is there anyone here like (laughs) 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 yeah I'm going to have to look the, these people up for sure. Yeah, so, so Burial, always... Stockhausen, but yeah, Burial Visage. That's a good starting point. See, you know, you, you listen to it in the dark on headphones with the lights out. See what you think. Sweet, sweet. <laughs> I feel like I look, look like cloaked and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, It'll be good. Um, mm-hmm. Since you're in the, the film composing world now, um, are there any specific musical moments in film that is all that have always stuck with you, you know, like uh, that inspire you. You wake up and you're like, "Oh shit!" That song in that movie, this musical cue in this movie, just I'm in. I'm going. Well, you know, again, it's like so. There's a, a quote in Underplayed where someone says, "You can't be what you can't see," and um, musically that was a huge shift in film composition as well for me. And, and so uh, Cliff Martinez drive that soundtrack, you know, is, you know, hearing that. Even Blade Runner, right. Which, you know, just hearing electronic soundtracks that are just so emotional and, just tick every single box in terms of delivering 
you know, everything that anyone would ever want. So, so those, but then that was, you know, those, those also still somehow felt out of reach and somehow virtuosic. And then the, the other one that really made me be like, you know what, there's a paradigm shift was when, uh, I can't believe Atticus Ross and um, Trent Reznor, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross won the Academy Award for best soundtrack for the social network because the social network is not virtuosic. The social net winning that Oscar was an absolute paradigm shift in film music. You know, it's, it is perfect. The soundtrack is perfect and that's why it won, but it was a paradigm shift to say, we don't need a 50 piece orchestra and it doesn't need to be virtuosic. You know, having a Trent Reznor style, distorted, amazing sort of textural pad and, you know, just, simple piano but not written in like the typical film score piano way right um and then you know is is enough and it's more than enough it was the best soundtrack of that year so that was empowering for me that happened right around the time I was getting my master's and so definitely when I was struggling to find my own voice I felt less daunted because it was like okay you know it's just some distorted pads and it's basically more about having good taste when you're in that sort of realm. So yeah, I think that's, those are the, those are the, those are the big moments for me where I was like, cool. I like this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sweet. Um, yeah. And serious question for you. Um, do you ever take any of your son's favorite TV shows and remix them for him in the EDM oh. world? Like reading Rainbow or oh. Paw Patrol? <laughs> That's amazing idea. I have it. You know what? I think I actually just yesterday, I was like, you know what? I have, he literally comes in. This is not my studio. I have a like a studio away from home here in London, but even here, I just have like a couple of pieces of equipment or whatever. And he's so cute. He comes in here and I'll just say, can we make music mommy? You have so many interesting things in here, you know, and like he just likes this room. So yeah. And yesterday when he said that I was like you know what this is crazy that I'm not encouraging this so yeah I think I think that's I'm gonna take your idea I'll let you know how it goes like oh, next please. time he says it I'm gonna be like yes we're gonna just down like I can just download a video and like remove the sound and we'll just create a soundtrack together oh my god an EDM reading <laughs> rainbow take a look it's in a book a reading rainbow Oh my goodness. Yeah, that would be go. oh, that would be fire. That would be bumping. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. Was that the serious question, by the way? That, that was, was the serious that... question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not okay. That's good. I'm not Ryan yeah, has that's... a sustain and then he fades. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. This is very true. Oh, hilarious. I love it. Well, I guess to wrap this up, I, I have two. One fun, okay. one serious. Uh, okay. What do you make of Daft Punk breaking up and you thought about reaching out to them to pair with either to chart a path ah. forward into film music? Mm. Well, uh, yeah, Daft Punk breaking up. I mean, there's just always chatter of like, are they going to tour again? Are they going to tour again? Are they going to tour again? So that's why there are some funny tweets that were like, like no <laughs> like, like at least we know the answer the answer is no for good I mean it's it is what it is I mean I think sometimes it's good to quit while you're ahead you know what I mean it's like you know it's sad 
but um, sometimes when anything, a restaurant or, you know, whatever cool hangout or cool music group or whatever, sometimes it's better to just say, we're going to end here, right? And we're going to have our legacy end. I mean, that the album that they put out, I don't know when that was, 2013 or whatever, but the most recent album was absolutely epic when they worked with Nile Rodgers and maybe that was just like, to end it there is kind of smart, I think. So, I mean, I'm sad that I have more music from them, but I respect it. And we're, I have never, I mean, th- you know, I'm getting all these ideas. I'm going to be remixing, reading Rainbow and composing film music with Daft Punk. And, <laughs> you know, you guys are going to be asking for percentages. <laughs> it's all on, it's all on tape. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. 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 Commissions, that is. Yeah. All right. So when you're about to play a set, you go to a rave, you go to a concert or something, you're around other musicians. Do you uh, do you address each other like doctors? DJ, 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 DJ. No. <laughs> that was a buzzkill. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, like, well, I know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, no. And I know that some DJs who take themselves more seriously probably don't like to be even called DJs. Like I don't mind being called a DJ, but no, I don't, I don't think people really, unless DJs in your DJ names, like DJ shadow, you know what I mean? Like there's some people who have DJ in their name and then yes, but most of the time, I think, especially in the DJ world, it just depends, but some people like, uh, or get get so fanatical about like is that the DJ and like so yeah I don't I think that some people who are DJs just want to blend in and enjoy a drink when they're not DJing you know what I mean <laughs> I hear you <ya. laughs> yeah and um what uh what turntables what equipment turntables do you use specifically what's the best the same ones as behind you Techniques twelve hundreds that's what I got so, yeah I can see that so yeah those are the turntables and then I have Pioneer CDJs um and yeah that's it really excellent for DJ yeah yeah well Kate thank you for joining us on the unbalanced note uh the spotlight's on you please tell everyone where they can find you in the movie (laughs) underplayed (laughs) (laughs) oh my god so yeah so underplayed is on Amazon Prime Video worldwide. So this is this is has made it so easy to tell anyone anywhere. Bad boy Amazon. That was like one of my New Year's resolutions before I knew it was distributed by Amazon. I was like, no more Amazon 2021 for me. Like, I, I've just given that up. I'm like, I am totally into Amazon. Everyone, check out this movie on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> like, never mind. And um, yeah, the the soundtrack's out on Lakeshore Records, and if. If you're fans of film music or just interested in film music, Lakeshore is amazing. Um, they did Stranger Things and they do more, you know, I don't know, just classical or just, you know, orchestral scores as well, but they're amazing soundtrack um, label. And because of that, they have good distribution. So you can find the score on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, all these kinds of places. And it's underplayed. And they also did drive too. Lakeshore did drive. Yeah, they did drive as well. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm like pinching myself, but I'm on that label. I'm, I'm very happy. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cool. 
Well, thank you so much again. We look forward to having you back on the show soon. Wow, uh, we'll do so. we'll do a live DJ set. Uh, yeah. With, with, with we're not? only doing kids shows though. It's like that's the theme. <laughs> <laughs> Remixing children's shows. Okay. Well, I'm gonna get practicing. Okay. Perfect, <laughs> this is new perfect. material for me. <laughs> good. 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 Well, thank you so much, Kate. Oh, thank you guys. It was great to meet you both and have this chat. Thanks so much.